we will read the Word of God together, we will pray, and then we'll hear the Word of God preached. It says, beginning in verse 12, or excuse me, chapter 12, verse 1, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared for her by God, so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place for them found in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now... The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcome him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath knowing that he has only a short time. Let's pray. Father, we do want to worship and bow down. Because in the most profound of ways, you yourself bowed down. You came from heaven to earth in the person of your Son, and you humbled yourself. You became like one of us. And not just one of us in glory and splendor, but one of us in the depths of the depths. You were a servant. You were a peasant. You owned nothing. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Nowhere to find rest. And Lord, You went to the cross and purchased redemption for us. You bought us back from the power of the enemy. And You ascended into heaven, Lord, to sit at the right hand of God. And so, Lord, we do worship and bow down. You were crowned once with the crown of thorns, but now, Lord, we crown you with our praises. We crown you with our worship, with our obedience, because you are worthy, Lord. Your beauty and your glory surpasses all things of this world. Lord, they seem empty and meaningless before you. And so, Lord, we ask that as we open your word now that you would speak to us. We open our hearts to you, Lord. Uh, We want to Rejoice in the fullness of salvation this morning. So as we draw near to you, Lord, be pleased in your great mercy to draw near to us. We love you, Father. Speak to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Advent season, as we have been diligent to point out, begins in darkness and gradually moves into light. Like the scripture says, the people who walk in darkness, have seen a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light 
will shine upon them. And so in this Advent season, we move from longing to expectation, and then finally to fulfillment, right? From darkness to light. And that's the way our Advent sermon series has run thus far. We began with our desperate and anxious longing for deliverance by looking at the woman's labor pains, and then we heightened our expectation for the imminent fall of the devil. And today, we come to the fulfillment of those themes. As our passage says in verse 10, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God have come. Past tense. The dark and gloomy days under the devil's tyranny have passed, and a new day has dawned. And that's the theme of this morning's sermon. Completion. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' last words on the cross, we are told, are, it is finished. In the Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. Whatever Jesus had come to do, he accomplished it. There is a finality and completion. And where there is completion, there must be rest. The Scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, By the seventh day, God completed the work of creation and so rested from all His work which He had done. God's rest, of course, is not physical rest, as if He became tired and needed to recharge. Rather, His rest is the rest of satisfaction and completion. He has done the work of creation, and so He takes joy in it. And that's not the point, what we're trying to get at. The point is simply that after completion, there is rest. And so it seemed to follow then, after Jesus said, it is finished, that there is rest, not only for him, but also for us. After all, Jesus came to the earth not to die for his own sake, but ours. And so whatever is finished, is finished on our behalf. There must be rest, and naturally there is. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. So this morning, as we consider Jesus' birth and His return from heaven, as we consider the beginning and the completion of salvation, we will also consider what it means for us, and that is rest. So turn your attention to verse 5 of chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, it says, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, as we've seen, despite the dragon's attempt to devour the child, the child nevertheless was born. But he is no mere child. The passage says, He is to rule the nations With a rod of iron. The child that is born is born to be king. And that imagery, a rod of iron in the king's hand, is a deliberate callback to Psalm chapter 2. There God speaks to his anointed, which is another name for king, and he says in Psalm chapter 2 Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. He says, you shall rule them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. 
The passage speaks prophetically of the global dominion and the universal reign of the world's true king. God will give this king, the passage says, the nations as his inheritance, the very ends of the earth as his possession. And it says he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And the king prophesied of in Psalm chapter 2 is, of course, the king born in Revelation 12. And that is, of course, what we celebrate today. The world's true king, Jesus of Nazareth, has been born. What have we just sung? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthem sweet while shepherds watch her keeping. This, this is Christ the King. God has not sent us merely a teacher or a moral exemplar, but a conquering King. Advent, this Christmas week, is not about God's plan to rescue our souls from this doomed world. Rather, it's about God's plan to take back the world. Born on Christmas Day is not He who will whisk us away to heaven, but He who comes to rule the nations, this earth, with a rod of iron. Today, we celebrate the arrival of a king. The one at whose conception the the angel Gabriel announced, He will be great, and He will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give Him, listen, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. God sends us a king because we need a king. The world with its inhabitants and nations, cannot rule itself properly. We all know this. In the long run, our wisdom turns out to be folly. Our righteousness, wickedness. Our freedom, bondage. This is, of course, painfully obvious in the nations and institutions and in the ideologies of the world. None are ever able to bring about justice and peace but always tend toward oppression and violence. But the same holds true in our individual lives. Even our best plans culminate in failure. Even our purest intentions bring harm. As the Scripture says, our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Try as we might, we simply cannot right the ship, neither on the macro scale nor on the micro scale in our lives. And this takes us back to the very first pages of the Bible. Why did mankind fall in the first place? Because he thought he knew better than God. Trusting in his own wisdom, disregarding the wisdom of God, man took and ate the forbidden fruit. The very thing he thought would bring him good, instead brought him death. And how true that is in our own lives. On our own, like Adam and Eve, we cannot determine or discern between 
good and evil for ourselves, what is beneficial and harmful. As the Scripture says, there is a way that seems right to a man. There's a way that we first see it and it seems this is what will be good for me. This is what will bring me happiness. This is what will bring me joy and fulfillment. But the Scripture says, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 14, 12. We are like children who think they know better than their parents and so they disregard their counsel and we chart our own course and we set our own rules, which is of course what Psalm chapter 2, which we just looked at, depicts. The psalm begins by saying, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? It says the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. The picture one gets is an animal being drawn along by a yoke and ropes. That is the nations following behind God in fetters and cords. Of course, these images speak to God's dominion and his authority over the nations, their rulers, and their inhabitants. But they revolt and conspire against God to rid, him, to rid themselves of their rule over him, over them because they want to be their own masters. Let us tear apart his authority over us. And as we've said, what's true for the world on a macro scale is true for us individuals on a micro scale. We too, do we not, struggle and kick against God's authority over our lives. He tells us, as a loving father, this is the way of blessing. This is the way of happiness. But we respond, no, I can, I can figure this out on my own. It makes me think of Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy's words in the 1992 Planned Parenthood v. Casey ruling. He wrote, and I quote, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. The idea of Kennedy's words is that it is up to each one of us to determine what is good and bad for ourselves. We get to define one's own concept of existence. We don't need God to do that for us because we can do it for ourselves. In other words, what is being said is that I can be my own ruler. I can chart my own course and I know what is good for me. That's where we stand. But that doesn't work out, does it? Under our own lordship, how many times have we proved this to be true in our own lives? We bring ourselves to ruin. Like the child who eventually finds out the hard way that his parents were right, so we too eventually find out that God's plan, and not ours, is the way of blessing. The bottom line is, we are terrible rulers of ourselves and of this world. We cannot order our own lives properly, and we cannot order this world properly. And so unable to rule ourselves, we need someone to do it for us. We need someone to come and show us the ways of righteousness, to show us the paths of peace, and to point us toward what is good. 
in short, we need a king. And that king was born Christmas Day. But our passage doesn't linger on the king's birth. It passes immediately from cradle to throne. Go back to verse 5. It says, And she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Strangely, St. John skips the middle and bookends Jesus' life with incarnation and ascension. As soon as Jesus is born, the passage tells us he is caught up to God and to his throne. And very important for us, something we can't miss, is the fact that Jesus is caught up not just to heaven, right? He just doesn't go into heaven, but to the throne, in particular the throne of God. And the passage, all commentators agree, depicts Jesus' exaltation and enthronement as the world's true king. What's recorded for us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew and the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. Jesus ascending to heaven and taking his throne. And this whole scene is beautifully put in the words of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Listen to how this is depicted many years before it came to pass. Daniel says, I kept looking in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up, like our passage, Jesus was caught up, he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. There's Jesus standing before the Father, and it says, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And as was pointed out last week, the enthronement of the world's true King, as was just read in the prophet Daniel, the enthronement of the world's true King precipitates the downfall of the ruler of this world. Back to Revelation 12, this time verse 7 through verse 9, it reads, And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place for them found in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And so I take the first word of verse 7, and, to be a chronological marker. The king assumes his throne, he's caught up to God's throne, and then the dragon is cast out of heaven. And if I'm right, the passage is not depicting some primordial fall in times past, but it speaks of the consequences of the king's enthronement. It is the beginning of the end for the devil and his kingdom because a new king and a new kingdom have come. Immediately after that, verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. Again, past tense. So once again, I take the voice's words at the beginning, now, and at the end, have come, 
to be chronological markers. The king takes his throne. The devil is subsequently cast down. And thus, a new historical epoch has begun. Prior to the ascension, these things were not. But in the ascension, they are. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. And this, church, is what we celebrate today. Not just that the world's rightful king has been born. Of course, we celebrate over that. But that we know He completed His mission. He has taken the throne. A sign can be hung up at the storefront of the window of the world which reads, Under New Management. Someone else is in charge. And I know that's a lot to accept. It's a mouthful. So let's see if we can prove it from another angle. You can turn there to yourself, but I'll read it for you. It's John chapter 12. I overlooked this in my own study, but someone pointed out to me last week. And beginning in John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus says this. And pay attention to the, the chronological markers. He says, now, this is days before his crucifixion, literally either a day or two days before his crucifixion. He says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. Notice the similarity of language between that passage and ours. He says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So here, Jesus speaks of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension being lifted up from the earth, literally in his death, in his crucifixion, lifted up from the earth, in his resurrection, lifted up from the grave, in the ascension, lifted up from the world itself. He depicts these moments as a struggle and the victory over the ruler of this world, such that he will be cast down or driven out. And not driven out at some later time, but Jesus says, now. Once again, Jesus' enthronement is depicted as a dethronement of the devil. The once ruler of this world, the prince of darkness, is ruler no longer. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. And that incredible event, the victory of the true king and the establishment of his kingdom is what we celebrate today. The decisive, all-important, and central moment in history has already happened. And as a result, the whole world pivots and turns in a new direction. Our world is no longer destined for destruction and death but rather, under the authority of its true king, it's headed for the end, depicted in Isaiah 11. It's a rather large portion of Scripture, but let these words wash over you as I read them. It says, beginning in verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, that's King David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. It's speaking of God's promises of a king to come through the line of David. It says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of understanding and wisdom. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor. And he will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. It then says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them, and also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. Then it says, They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the waters as the waters cover the sea. The king, whom we celebrate today, has and will usher an age in which those words are fulfilled. When all things are at peace with one another, the wolf and the lamb, the lion and the calf, the bear and the cow will all lie down together. And those images are a reflection of the greater peace that will be established over human affairs. The king will rescue the poor. He will deliver the afflicted. He will slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth. In his kingdom, they will not hurt nor destroy. Let it be so. This is what is here and what we look forward to. But I imagine that some of you would think I'm blowing smoke. We're celebrating Christmas outside in the dead of winter with masks on in the middle of a pandemic. How exactly has the kingdom of God come? Because if we look around, it sure doesn't feel like it. So allow me to explain. The kingdom of God has come, and it is still coming. This is what the fancy theologians call the already, but not yet. The kingdom of God has already taken root, but it has not yet reached its full blossom. It still has to mature. Jesus is already king. He sits at the right hand of the Most High, but all things are yet to be brought under his authority. On the already side, Jesus said things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here, it's right around the corner, and the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's right here, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. But on the not yet side, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come, as if it's still afar off. And his statements are not in contradiction, Rather, they illuminate the nature of the kingdom. It is present, and yet it's still coming. It's still on its way. You might think of it like the first day of spring, March 20th. If you step outside on that day expecting the temperature to be in the mid-70s and the trees and the flowers to be in full blossom and the birds to be singing, you're going to be sadly mistaken. It's not that spring has not come. It has. Rather, it's that spring is still on its way. It is officially recognized on the calendar, but it has yet to catch up with that announcement. The warm weather, the birds, and the beautiful flowers have yet to come. And likewise, winter has ended, 
It's past, but it's still on its way out. And from about mid-March to early May, both seasons are still present. One, one day feels like spring, and the next day feels like winter all over again, especially here in New Mexico. And that is a bit what the kingdom of God is like. It's here, but it's still coming. And likewise, the kingdom of darkness has been cast out, but it still makes its presence felt, as of course is all too obvious to us. And as we might expect, that's how Jesus talked about these matters. He compared the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. The kingdom starts small, like a tiny seed, small enough to overlook and dismiss, but in time, he says it will grow to fill the entire earth. He also compared it in another place to a field with wheat and tares or weeds in it. Of course, both of those symbolizing the righteous people and the unrighteous. He says these tares and uh, wheats, they grow alongside each other until the harvest. Jesus acknowledges that even within the kingdom of God, there is the presence of both good and evil. To take us back to our analogy, there are signs of spring. On the one hand, there are wheat, and there are also signs of, signs of winter. There are still tares. But here's the point, and here's where we want to bring all this to a conclusion. And that is to say, spring is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. And it is as good as done. Back to our passage, Revelation 12, 12. It says that the devil knows he has only a short time. Psalm 2, the passage of which Revelation 12 is based upon, says that God laughs and scoffs at the nation's futile attempts to resist his king and his kingdom. Nothing can stop the forward march of God's kingdom. Jesus is king, and the so-called rulers of this world, both physical and spiritual, are living on borrowed time. Christ sits at the right hand, right hand of God, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, until, and I quote, He has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. He will not fail. The Lord has spoken, and it will come to pass. And so to return to our theme at the beginning, if it's as good as done, if it's money in the bank, then, brothers and sisters, that means we can rest. We must remember that the completion of the kingdom of God and that our salvation is not our work, but the king's. The kingdom is not the product of our bottom-up efforts as if it's all up to us, but rather it's a top-down effort. It is the work of God. The king that we celebrate today, he was not born from within this world, but he came from the outside, God incarnate. And likewise, at the end of Revelation, the new Jerusalem, signifying the completion of salvation, it does not arise from the earth, but it comes down from heaven. In that sight, what all Christians look to, the arrival of the new Jerusalem, the arrival of New Jerusalem descending from heaven, it should dispel us of the illusion that we can work this out, that somehow this is up to us. 
as the passage puts it in Isaiah 11, the government rests on his shoulders, not ours. He is king, not we. And that's the good news. It's not up to you. Salvation was accomplished 2,000 years ago, and it will probably be accomplished long after we've been buried in the ground. We play no part in the matter. It's all up to the Lord Jesus, and that is good news. And so if it's not up to us, and it's not, then we can rest. Though the kingdom is not entirely come, it's as good as done. The scripture speaks of our salvation in the past tense. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, here's the end, he also glorified. Past tense. In our eyes, it seems that we might never make it. That we might never arrive at the shores of the kingdom of God. But in God's eyes, it's a foregone conclusion. The zeal of the, the Lord of hosts will accomplish it, accomplish it. And so, I'd like to leave you with a picture. Something to mull over as we prepare to celebrate Christmas this week. It's from Exodus chapter 14. The children of Israel are confronted by the Red Sea on one side, and they're pursued by the Egyptians on the other. They cannot cross the Red Sea, and the Egyptians are barreling down on them, ready to put them to death. And it seems that there's no way of escape. So, naturally, the Hebrews cry out to God, and they complain against Moses. They said, why have you brought us out here to kill us? It would have been better if we just stayed in Egypt and served them. At least we wouldn't have died this horrible death. But Moses, the servant of God, he trusts the Lord. He responds to their fear with these words. Do not fear. He says, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And so as we wind down, remember the Lord fights for you. The work of redemption is his alone. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. So what bothers and nags and depresses you this Christmas week? Is it heartbreak? Is it the grief of loss? Is it the weight of your own failure? Whatever it is, put it to rest. Only be silent. The work is done. You need not fear. The battle belongs to the Lord. Let's pray.